Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent, but will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Think of the deindustrialization in the north of England in the 80s, for example, and the current deindustrialization of Appalachia in the United States, which, among many other factors, has fueled the rise of populism in that country, with dire consequences for the future of democracy. In the case of climate change and the urgent transition to sustainability, not having a transition will make us all losers. But this does not mean we should not try to avoid or minimize the negative impacts of the transition on vulnerable groups. It's all about the fair distribution of the benefits, but also the burdens of our human association. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition. That is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, urban sustainability and resilience, resilience engineering, ethics of resilience, and multi-actor systems. We want to discuss the values in social technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural, and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy, and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions, social, economic, and environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So, we came up with the idea of this podcast. We wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Two episodes ago, Professor Faranak Miraftab talked to us about the need to decolonize our minds and seek for the just city that is life-giving rather than profit-making. In last week's episode, Professor Mona Fawaz from the American University in Beirut told us about urban informality as an insurgent practice and reflected on the role of the state 
leading us to important questions of rights and inclusion. Today we have Professor Mariana Fix from the School of Architecture and Urbanism at the University of Sao Paulo. Mariana talks to us about the commodification and financialization of urban space. Mariana is the author of the books Partners in Exclusion, Parceiros da Exclusão, and São Paulo Global City, São Paulo Cidade Global, both published in Brazil. She holds a PhD in economics from the University of Campinas, a master's degree in sociology from the University of Sao Paulo, and a professional degree in architecture and urbanism, also from the University of Sao Paulo. She was IIAS Retheorizing Housing as Architecture Research Fellow and was a visiting research scholar at CUNY's Graduate Center as an Urban Studies Foundation Fellow. She's a member of the Housing and Human Settlements Laboratory at FAUUSP and has been working with Right to the City movements for several years. Without further ado, let's listen to Professor Mariana Fix. Thank you, Roca. Thank you so much, Roca and all the organizers. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. It's also a great responsibility to speak at such a well-organized and relevant event uh, with engaged and informed audience. Uh, I was told that there are people from uh, over 100 different universities and also to be preceded by Professor Faranaki and Mona. And uh, I will share with you a presentation I prepared for today. I will talk today about uh, the capitalist city and the production of urban space under neoliberalism and financialization or finance-led globalization from a point of view of uh, constituted in the global south with a historiographical approach. For this, uh, I'm going to make uh, use of an article which uh, was made available to you. Uh, it's a, an article I wrote uh, with Pedro Arantes, yeah. and it was written at, at the suggestion of uh, the journal editors Vanessa Watson and Ronan Petson, who critically dialogued with us for, throughout the writing process with academic rigor and uh, much generosity. My remarks are also based on research I've carried out on the theme of housing, urban entrepreneurship, planning models, real estate, finance capital, and financialization, gentrification, and PPPs over the three uh, of the last three decades. In doing so, I hope to contribute to the debate on commodification and financialization, as suggested by the organizers, by discussing how recent changes. Uh, that I've been trying to map through those research affect capitalist uh, urbanization. Examined in its planetary dimension and uh, in longer term, uh, capitalist urbanization has always expanded in a violent, uneven, and predatory way. Therefore, expanding visibility of Southern uh, theories and practices is not only a means of defending epistemological diversity, but above all, contributing to the broad critical field since events and ideas in the South are powerful for understanding the world as a whole and not only the South, as per uh, Alan Mabam. 
Thus, I begin by briefly revisiting a set of hypotheses produced uh, by some uh, generations of authors in the field of urban studies in Brazil. Apparently chaotic, uh, Latin American cities' landscapes and their history reveal uh, how capitalism unfolds and develops in our continent. This apparent chaos has, although, uh, has a rationality behind it, behind this superficial chaos lies a systematic uh, or a systemic inequity in the distribution of benefits of urbanization and of the social reproduction of labor. These disparities are not merely a reflection of social inequalities, but are accentuated by spatial segregation, social controls, and strategies aimed at the depreciation of real estate values. The effort to dissect the forms of production of built environment is important for any project of social transformation, especially in the context of planetary urbanization. Brazilian intellectuals and scholars have formulated original theories to explain the country's urbanization process, relating urban issues to more general problems of uneven development in a post-colonial and imperialist concept. At the same time, urban social struggles produce relevant practice of social resistance and mobilization, which oppose uh, hegemonic uh, urban uh, planning projects guided by entrepreneurship and the commodification of the city. The historiographical approach favors the understanding on how neoliberalism and financialization act a reality very different from that of the United States or Europe, for instance, generating different consequences. It's important to understand that in countries of the global North, housing and cities have played a very important role in the process of globalization and financialization of the economy. And uh, they were not a mere reflection of their, I mean, they were a very active and important part of it, intrinsic to the process of financialization. And something similar happened here in, uh, in Brazil and in, in some countries of Latin America. But however, it should also be noted that this process affects a dependent uh, economy, a former colony such as ours, in a different way. So Brazil has produced a relevant and original field of urban studies inserted in the tradition of, in tradition of critical thinking that problematizes the dependency relationship in global capitalism. And I, get, I believe that that's important to understand what's going on nowadays. This field of studies reveals aspects of capitalist uh, expansion not always perceived and theorized in the so-called developed countries. The Brazilian university system started approaching urban studies in a more organized and systematic way during the 60s in order to understand the relationship between wealth and power, modernity and backwardness, migration and employment, inclusion, inclusion and marginalization, formality and informality, private property and clandestine access to land, for instance. The challenge was to understand the clash between hyperurbanization and underdevelopment. As a result, this contradictory and complex urbanization requires new categories and hypotheses to be formulated to understand the unequal and extreme processes that are intrinsic to the violent expansion of capitalist social relations across the globe. The very intensity of Brazilian urbanization accelerated and uneven, surrounded by conflicts and paradox, propelled the field of urban studies and gave the topic a sense of, of urgency. The overwhelming process of internal migrations, urban growth, and the production of new cities, including 
the new modernist capital, Brasilia, was responsible for shaking up the university, drawing its attention to the topic in the 60s. As a result, during these new decades, urban studies became one of the most promising and interdisciplinary strains on the, in the economy. In the slide, you can see this turning point from rural to urban and the, the speed of the Brazilian um, urbanization, which is part of the explanation uh, to this uh, development of, uh, of a field of studies that I'm trying to, to tell you more about it. That was not specialized in the beginning in, in uh, urban studies. It was not even called urban studies, it, but it uh, put together people from uh, intellectuals and scholars from different backgrounds, all of them facing the same challenge to understand what was going on in, with this urbanization process, in which ways it was similar to those in other countries, but also the specificities, the specificities of what they called the social Brazilian social formation. And later it specialized in a, in a field, academic field with uh, its own uh, postgraduate studies and universities and so on. But so, so we call uh, that the Brazilian uh, matrix of urban studies, a matrix, a matrix of um, thought on land, labor, capital, and power. This academic uh, production is important to say is paired with new practices and forms of social mobilization and resistance that emerged uh, from this turbulent cont context as well. At this time, uh, we were uh, living in a dictatorship in Brazil, and, uh, and so it was from the beginning connected with uh, grassroots uh, movements that many hypotheses were formulated and uh, dealing with the challenges of social struggle posed by social movements. So the question was how to explain uh, this uh, intense uh, migra migratory process of urban growth without the corresponding modernization of productive forces that had accompanied the phenomenon in countries at the center of global capitalism. In Sao Paulo, for instance, the main center of uh, Brazilian industrialization, these issues were present given the spatial evidence of these gaps that could be seen in the cityscape itself, the production of wealth took place side by side with the growth of poverty. It was a time that uh, Brazil was like one of the countries that was leading um, a very fast uh, process of economic growth. But at the same time, there was a lot of poverty. How to explain, how to understand that, and there, was, there were some uh, hypotheses. I will just summarize two of them, which you can see on the screen. One of them is called urban uh, spoliation, and the other one, the selective application of urban law. Urban spoliation, the term is uh, urban spoliation, characterized forms of dispossession of the lower classes resulting from the combination of economic growth and urban institution which is intrinsic to the process of urbanization in the periphery of capitalism. In Lucius Kovarik's definition, urban spoliation is the sum of extortions that operate through the absence or precariousness of urban amenities and services that is presented as socially necessary in relation to prevailing substance, uh, subsistence levels and which further aggravate the relationships of production and exploitation of labor. The urban setting, in the sense, is the denial of the production of the labor force at acceptable levels. The other one, the selective application of urban law, 
means that in the urbanization process, the legal city, the so-called legal city, highly, highly regulated, the formal city, if you want to call it like that, uh, become um, uh, an exception in Brazil in the face of the immense urbanization results resulting from citizens' direct actions outside official planning law, such as slums and favelas and, uh, and tenements. Once the norm has been swallowed up by the exception, the role of effort of normative rationality and the crux of ideas of modern urban studies become questionable. However, systematic law breaking, it's important to, to mention, is the rule both for the legal and the legal city from the ruling class and the poor. The urban stages change the, its political standing starting in the aging, thanks to its progressive connection between theory and practice, research and public policies, and teaching and political activism. The intense circulation occurs in other countries of, south, uh, of Global South, as well as acknowledged by Alan Maban in, in his essay, Theory from the South Southern City. It's also an agenda for action built in, in a long tradition of engaged scholarship. As a result, Brazil gradually became a major urban policy laboratory and a place for innovative theory as well, including participatory budgeting, investment in peripheries, urban qualification and facilities, land regularization, participation, participatory slum upgrading, particip uh, housing design, technical support to mutual ed, housing production by social movements, and so on. Controversies related to globalization and neoliberalism made the, the, this field of urban studies make a shift and deals with changes in Brazilian economy and society. The progressive agenda of urban reform, with those elements I just mentioned, has come under increasing pressure from groups that seek to expand and reshape cities according to their own interests. Property developers in the manner of so activists or more like lobbyists push for change in the urban planning and housing policy. The opening of new grand boulevards, then increasing in verticalization indices, the introduction of housing subsidies. In addition, there were changes in the regulatory framework, such as the creation of the Brazilian real estate finance system in the end of the 90s including the creation of certificates of real estate receivables that resemble the U.S. mortgage-backed securities. Some other key contemporary debates are global mega-events, public-private partnerships, inner-city gentrification, housing and city financialization, rising forms of urban warfare, and social control in favelas and number insurgencies. In the, in the article I sent to you, we go into each one of these debates. We try to offer a map of the current uh, debates and also try to understand what are the new approaches towards it, what are their dialogues with other countries, with the Global North, and try to see if we have, again, uh, new um, and original theories similar to what happened in the 60s, and what we notice that uh, nowadays it's sometimes uh, also taking benefit of the possibilities of the internet. It's easier for students and even for researchers, for professors, for um, scholars 
to read uh, the new book uh, from uh, from very relevant and important authors from the global north. But uh, but part of this uh, own way of thinking, the organization which was formed uh, in the 60s and 70s, it's not so easy to take into account. That's why we tried in this article to offer uh, this um, hypothesis that we had like there uh, a matrix of uh, or uh, thinking that perhaps can be useful to not just to think uh, the reality of the urban South, but to rethink uh, urban theory, of course, in dialogue uh, with different uh, traditions, different way of thinking. So it's with this uh, hypothesis that uh, I go back to my own research on uh, PPPs and on uh, financialization that I've been doing for a while, just one on the screen is, uh, I think we were still colleagues, Roku. Uh, it was from my, from my first uh, research at uh, the architecture school, which was a, a kind of urban, what we called, it's the way that PVP is uh, just like the main, um, uh, as, as a formula, I call it like a magic formula was presented also in Brazil, similar to other, other countries, kind of international model that travels a lot. What I tried to understand is what happened when it was applied in a country such as Brazil, with all this with this urbanization marked by this by a very unequal society, lots of segregation and so on. So that's when I started uh, working on that, there was kind of, um, it was in the beginning of the 90s. So it kind of was kind of a consensus that that was the only way to deal with cities nowadays. That was kind of what we now know that it was a hegemonic uh, planning planning method or planning uh, ideas that were going all over the, the world, uh, mainly with influence uh, from, uh, from Barcelona, for instance, the idea of the strategic planning, the idea that you had to do uh, partnerships that uh, the state couldn't afford uh, to, to finance this kind of changes that the cities needed. And but when I started doing research on it, that's why I say that it's very important to to learn about our own uh, traditional thinking and also doing a lot of empirical research. There are some pictures that I took, and uh, it was kind of by accident that I went there because it was very hard to find uh, information, uh, formal information in the in the city hall, and there. I had to go there and start asking people what was going on. And what I found out was this very different picture from, the, from what was being told uh, for, uh, for us, even in the university. So this kind of partnership was not, uh, was not exactly what they, they meant. But it, uh, in the end, uh, what happens that forced uh, those people from the, it, it promised to, to solve the housing problem of the people living in the most rich areas of the city by selling property rights and even transforming those property rights in kind of bounds. And that leads us to the discussion on financialization and so on, because they were action at the, in public actions by the city hall. And so the situation was that even the population living in, not this slide, but the previous one, living in the richest area of the city that had the right to housing, 
and the Brazilian constitution and the democratization process in 1988 that was included uh, the right to the city and later on the right to housing. But instead of fighting explicitly to the right to housing, which is, was a very important fight in Brazil, by, and it is right now also, we have very strong housing movements, but inserted in this kind of mechanism of public-private partnership, what seemed right to, to some dwellers of the slums was to, to defend the model because if they didn't uh, defend it, if they didn't say that uh, the city hall should uh, sell property rights and attract investors and attract the private partners, there would be no money to change this area. So the discourse was that um, the city hall wouldn't have to spend money on that because everything would be paid by the investors. And in the end, by the research, what I found out that it was mostly paid by, by what we call public funds, which include the budget and, and many other forms of public funds. In some cases, for instance, public lands. And so... I wouldn't. I won't go more into detail because we don't have much time. But uh, this kind of discussion I've been doing on PPP based on this international literature on the Brazilian uh, urban studies and theory, and also a lot on uh, on research, uh, on empirical research, because otherwise I think it's easy to to be convinced by the discourses. So most of people, as I was saying, and thank for the picture, most of the, picture, the, the people were not uh, um, included in the few social housing buildings that were built in the rich area and were evicted and had to live uh, in, um, in other slums, in, uh, in this case, in a water-protected, uh, environmental uh, area of the city. Uh, because it was the only place they could afford with the, the money they got uh, when they were evicted. And so that gave rise to environmental issues and so on. And I tried to show that uh, there's a very concrete way of saying uh, what was mentioned before with the theoretical concept, the connections between legal and illegal. It's not just like two different uh, uh, processes, but they are totally interconnected. And I think we can uh, discuss that in theoretical way, why they are interconnected in a reality such hours. And we can also prove them when we do the empirical research. Uh, it was not my aim to prove that, but what happened is that I started to follow what happened with people that were being evicted, and then they moved straight to this area. So the last thing I was going to say is about financialization, a few words. Finance globalization, finance-led globalization, financial globalization, different terms for, to discuss this global phenomena that uh, show that happens in different ways in each country, such as the subprime in the U.S., the developer tsunami in uh, in Spain, uh, many changes that I'm trying to understand in Sweden. Even in Cuba, there is a student uh, supervised that studying. Uh, the real estate activities nowadays, very different, but each of them are very different. And what I've, I, I will try to say is a few words just to finish about how it's been going on here in, in Brazil. The general idea is that urban land and property and therefore cities seem to be under pressure to be treated as a pure financial asset and reduced to an open field 
for the circulation of interest-bearing capital since the creation of land markets, as David Harvey argues. So there is a speculative character of the, of the land market that is intrinsic to capitalism. And, and it is as if we have a new layer now with financialization of speculation going on. But how that happens here in Brazil, we didn't have the same kind of uh, securitization process that happened um, there in the US, but we did have some changes. And again, we ha I had to resort to a lot of uh, empirical research in order to map uh, how the channels through which uh, international finance capital got in the country, but also to map the permanence, what hasn't changed. And we still have like lots of companies that are part of it uh, belongs to the international finance capital, but part of it still belongs to the national elites. So what I try to discuss is that, is that uh, we had this kind of global logic of finance capital, which has been much discussed lately, but we have also obstacles that finance capital encounters in, a, in, a, in Brazilian cities. And uh, so only with this kind of, um, of uh, empirical research, I think we can, we can map uh, how it tries to overcome or circumvent those barriers. So... I, of course, I won't be able to tell you the results of the research, but to just give a feeling of what I've been trying to map. So we have like a global international company like Equity International led by Zanzel, and then investing in different countries such as China and Mexico. And, and one the way that got, they got into Brazil was buying this uh, Brazilian um, it's not buying, it's taking control, finance control of a Brazilian company, uh, taking it to the stock marketing, open up, it's uh, making it a public uh, tradable company and then selling it uh, again. So it's kind of just short term speculative movement, but with, uh, with lots of consequences for the landscapes. When we talk like that, it seems that now finance capital is changing the cities. Everything has to do with about finance capital. But when you do more research on it, then you finally realize, and I'll show it in the, in the next few images. So why am I bringing you here? This image of a housing program, it seems like this public uh, housing program. It's a social policy. Uh, very good in in a way because we have we had in the beginning of the 2000s we have 2009 sorry in the end of the 2000s we had this housing program from uh, promising to build uh, like millions of housing and how are, is that connected with, with uh, what I am telling you and what we can realize is that nothing is going on about in this realm of financialization and finance capital going in the cities without lots of public money, without the state and with, without the state making its disconnection between the global finance capital and the cities. And, and so that, that makes the program, as you can guess, very controversial because it's important that there are a lot of houses being built, but it also means that these housing are being built in a way that it benefits a lot of financial investors and the Brazilian owners of this kind of home builders. And they, are built, they, they, they were built in the peripheries of the city with low quality architects and planner had, uh, couldn't uh, do much about it. And also 
it's not a surprise for us, but perhaps it's very strange for you to learn that the housing debt, the housing shortage, uh, was too huge after all these houses were being built because there was so much speculation that uh, people who could afford to rent a house before that couldn't anymore. So you had new, more people again without being able to pay for the houses so that we understand that, uh, that what we should know since the beginning, that the problem of housing is not solved uh, with this kind of productivist uh, uh, way and with protagonism of the home builders, at least not in a country like uh, Brazil. To finish, uh, some findings, last uh, findings is that uh, I've been trying to map the channels of entry into the country of international finance capital, but also the permanence of power and national permanence, property, the relevance of public funds, such as subsidies and budget expenditure, the collisions and conflicts between different pressures of capitals, and try also to understand the connections between the formal real estate production, housing policies, state subsidy project, and self-construction of the so-called informal settlements, which still happen here. I must mention that uh, nowadays, uh, we, we are in a different situation from that. Perhaps some of you know that uh, now we have here an explosive and a very perverse uh, combination between neoliberalism and authoritarianism. That's not only in Brazil. You had that in the US recently with Trump. We still have Bolsonaro here. And that is already resulting in changes and challenges for the cities. That was uh, published a few days ago, uh, um, uh, research that shows that the numbers of favelas doubled in Brazil in the last uh, 10 years. So it's in this context, I think it's still very important to advance in the critical, reflexive, theoretical effort uh, associated with transforming uh, struggles and world articulations such as the one that you are building here for just cities, I think are very much uh, very important. This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez. Music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira. Sound edition by Hugo Lopez. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for Design for Values research, education outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of Design for Values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for Design for Values research, education, 
Outreach and Co-Creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods and best practices in the area of design for values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time!